kind of a new way to experience the Apostles' Creed as we often experience um, here at Rock Point, especially on Sunday mornings. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a little partial to, um, to this ink drawing than what you just saw there. But um, I, I, was, I, was, I was reading a story about fingerprints uh, this week. And, uh, and uh, this, this story is, is just, it's interesting to me. In, in September of 1910, there was this man by the name of Clarence Hiller, and, and he was painting some trim on his uh, second floor of his house. And uh, what uh, the, um, the detectives discovered was that uh, there obviously had been some sort of a scuffle. There was a tumble down the stairs. Um, there were some gunshots, two gunshots exactly. Uh, there was a door that had been slammed. And uh, Clarence Hiller was uh, lying dead uh, there on the ground on the first floor of his, uh, of his home. Now, there's another man in this story. His name was Thomas Jennings. Thomas Jennings was found less than a mile away. He had blood on his clothes. Uh, His left arm had been injured. He told investigators that he had fallen out of a streetcar. Crazy enough, uh, Thomas Jennings had a gun with him that fit the same description of the gun that had been fired inside of Clarence's home. But although forensics was nowhere near back over 100 years ago what it was today, the most compelling evidence of all was actually on a window seal. It was the thumbprint that was left by Thomas Jennings there at Clarence Hiller's home. It was such a significant find and trace, tracing back uh, Thomas to the scene of the crime that uh, that whole exhibit and display was uh, for all to see there at the World's Fair in St. Louis. You see, it was then that really we began to fully discover what a fingerprint can actually mean, how powerful it is, how you can draw different correlations to it. And as we look at who Jesus is, my hope is that we begin to tie some things together, maybe for some of you the very first time. Maybe for some of you what you need tonight more than anything else is just a reminder of how truly special Jesus is. Maybe tonight will be a refresher for you to be able to give some evidence for that which you have conviction to those that are around you. So that you could say to them, you know what, this is, this is not only what's going on inside of me, which is the most important thing really, but there's also a whole lot to Jesus that you may not know. Well, they certainly do, fingerprints, identify an individual's uniqueness and prove existence at a special place and time and leave a mark on what is touched. Um, Sir Isaac Newton wrote these words. He said, in the absence of any other proof the thumb would convince me of God's existence. Just the uniqueness of who we are is certainly proof, as far as Isaac Newton was concerned, that God exists. What about the fingerprints of Jesus, though? What does this look like? Walter Wink wrote, If Jesus had never lived, we would not be able to even invent him. How very unique he is. The first fingerprint that we investigate is the one of Jesus' uniqueness. He was born of a virgin, Luke 1, 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You know, uh, science continue, continues to amaze us, right? I mean, uh, each one of us probably knows uh, a, a, a couple. Some have been successful in this process, others not so much. However God chooses to do that is a mystery, certainly, but nonetheless, science has been used for couples to be able to conceive when they thought they would not be able to. There's also that whole 3D imaging. I don't know if any of you did that with your kids, if they're young enough that you took advantage of that. We had the opportunity with Lindley, finally, and we passed it up because I just thought it was kind of weird. But a lot of people like that, you know, the 3D image of, of the baby there in the womb. Amazing technology, amazing science, as it were. I was thinking about the, the ability now that couples have, and a lot is debated about this, should we be able to use science to choose whether or not we'll have a male or a female. And even in the news this past uh, week, this past last couple of weeks, it's, all, it's been about Down syndrome children, right? It's been about the fact that there are states who have said, listen, you cannot abort if you discover that you have a Down syndrome baby. Science is being used in so many different ways, both helpful and frightening. But for all that science has been capable of doing, the idea of the virgin birth still elusive. But not for Jesus. He wrapped himself in a body, a nose, a spleen, fingernails, hair, wet diapers, cutting teeth, crying. And all of a sudden you start to think, this kind of sounds like a Christmas sermon. Maybe so. It's not bad to be reminded of Christmas in the middle of the summer or the beginning of fall. Imagine for a moment, if you would, you're in whatever stage of life you are. You're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, beyond. Imagine with me, if you will, tomorrow you go back to baby. You go back to infant. You go back to toddler. You go back to not being able to do things for yourself. As crazy a thought as that would be, if you had all your cognitive ability, but all of a sudden transferred back into that baby. Here's what Jesus does. The Son of God, the one who was in the beginning with God in the creation of the world, now becomes constricted by time. Now, all of a sudden, the one who created time is restricted by it. Limited to specific time and place. Lying aside some of his divine attributes, yet still God. Born of a virgin. He was also one who lived a perfect sin-free life. Hebrews 4, 14, 15 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we find in Scripture, Jesus claims this. People who are close to him claim that to be true. His enemies claim that to be true, even in history, as it confirms it. All, after all, all the reports going around, here's what the consensus was. That Jesus went through his life without sin. And my thought is, if he had, there would have been a glowing testimony at some point to that effect. I mean, if not from anybody else, his brothers. 
Those of you with a brother just laughed. But instead, even historian Josephus wrote in his work, Antiquities, that it was, quote, hard to even call him a man. Well, Jesus also came back to life. There's some uniqueness there, right? In Acts 17, 2 through 4, now we turn, into, turn this into an Easter message. It says, and Paul went in as, his, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. You see, he presents the case that Jesus indeed not only died but rose again. Many people have risen from the dead. Jesus rose people from the dead. I had this unique opportunity several years ago. Former church I was a part of. We had a church planter come and hang out with us for a couple of weeks He was kind of on sabbatical. He was uh, in Africa. He was planting churches. He was a native African. He wanted us to pray with him because he was a a little troubled that the church planting scenario had kind of slowed down for them. We said, well, talk to us about the church planting experience you've been a part of. And he said, well, he said, typically what, what, what has happened over the last several years is God would lead us into this village and he would take us into this village and as we moved into this village... Um, we would begin to pray that God would open our eyes to the needs of the people around there. And, and he would inevitably draw us to somebody who had just died that day or maybe the night before. And he said, uh, God would lead us to that individual. And as they were mourning the loss of that individual, lead us to lay hands on that individual and raise that individual back to life. And the people would become so impacted by the fact that that person was living again that they began to follow the one true God and not whatever pagan practices their village had been a part of. And that's how we started churches. And I was like, yeah, we do that. That's the way we do it here too. That's kind of typical in America, you know. It's kind of blown away a little bit, you know, because he's, he's wanting us to lay hands on him that we might, that, that we might fill him, that we might, that, we, that we might pray over him that that might happen again. And I'm thinking, I don't feel worthy. I don't, I don't begin to even remotely understand that type of supernatural experience. And most of us who live in the 50 United States of America don't get it. But there is a sense at which there is supernatural power of the one true God at work in a variety of different ways and was in the life of Jesus. But here's the difference. Jesus rose from the dead and he stayed that way. And he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the heavenly father, interceding on our behalf, the book of Hebrews says. Fingerprint number one, unique. And we could talk about so many other ways in which Jesus was unique. That's just three. But let's go to the second fingerprint. The second fingerprint has to do with Jesus existing in a specific place and time. We find that all throughout this book, right? And we find an account of his life certainly in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament we find that this Jesus was indeed predicted. 
My, I've, I've got a friend. Uh, matter of fact, he came here and, and he's done several different things for us uh, in the children's ministry. His name is Bart Glatt, and he's a, he's, a, he's a Christian illusionist. And one of my favorite tricks that he used to do for me when I was a youth pastor, he would, um, he, he would do this trick where uh, at the beginning of a retreat, it would be like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday retreat experience, kind of like what our students do with Impact Weekend now in April. And he, he, would, he, he would, on Friday night, um, record some things uh, on, a, on a cassette tape and then give it to, to me. And I would take that cassette tape and put it into the cassette player, right? And then take the cassette player and put it into a locked box that went into another locked box that then we put down and, and I, and so I guess, I don't know who all kept the key or whatever, but it was locked. It wasn't in Bart's possession for the remainder of the weekend. And then on Sunday morning, as a part of our big grand finale with the kids, Bart would come up on stage and uh, he would come up on stage with me holding a newspaper and Bart having the box that we allowed him to finally open up. And as he opened up the box and took out the cassette player, he began to press, we pressed play on the cassette tape that he had created on Friday. And as he pressed play, we began to listen as he described the headlines of, back then it was the Houston Post, Houston Post and Chronicle were two, but it was the Houston Post we were using, as he was describing the headlines on the Houston Post for that Sunday morning. Let's just say that our kids were weirded out. Um, Bart wasn't a psychic or a modern-day prophet, He was just and is just an illusionist. It was an illusion. But Micah 5 and all the following prophecies that we will allude to here for a moment is not an illusion. It's not sleight of hand. As a matter of fact, Micah 5 too says this, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. As a matter of fact, um, the Old Testament had some pretty tight requirements, serious guidelines for those making those types of predictions in the name of God. Because actually in Deuteronomy 18, here's what, here's what it says. Here's what, here's what God told them. He said, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall get to try again. Nope. That prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the Lord that the that word that the Lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or came true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it pre- presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Old Testament prophets predicted the rise and fall of countries, of nations, of spiritual highs and lows within God's chosen people. They predicted future calamity and they've predicted tribulations. But the most important thing of all is they predicted these prophecies about the Messiah. A few I listed there for you. Genesis 12. I don't know if we put them on the screen. Yeah, we did. Genesis 12, one through three, the prediction that Jesus would be the descendant of Abraham fulfilled in Matthew and Luke. That he would be a descendant of the tribe of Judah, fulfilled in Luke 3. That his birth would be in Bethlehem, 
when his birth would occur, that it would be a virgin birth, that there would be the slaughter of children attached to his birth, that there would be a flight to Egypt. We don't have the time to go through all of them, but in the Old Testament, there are 60 different prophecies about Jesus. 300 different references. Did you know that? 300. And all 60 prophecies came true. Peter Stoner, professor of mathematics and astronomy, writes that the probability of just eight of those prophecies coming true is one in 100 quadrillion. It would be as if you took the state of Texas and filled the entire state two feet deep with silver dollars, one of them marked with an X, and you sent one parachuting man down into the state randomly, and he would reach down blindfolded and pull one up, and that would be the X. And that would be if indeed eight of them that were predicted became true. But not Jesus. Jesus, all 60. Jesus Christ, the predicted Messiah. Most of us would agree we are certainly aware of Jesus' existence proved through prophecies and narrated by the Gospels and assumed really by the remainder of the New Testament letters, right? Of life changed, of people following Jesus, of the disciples so very fearful. And then all of a sudden, what changed? Something happened. Something supernatural happened. What was it? They encountered Jesus alive, ascended. And they were never the same again. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they have this renewed vigor to go into all the world and tell them the good news of Jesus. But we don't just have evidence of his existence through the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And this is where for a lot of us we go, well, you know, you go off the grid when you leave the Bible. I mean, how much of that can you really depend on, right? I mean, there's, there's historical record that actually goes. A lot of people you may run into go, I just don't believe the Bible. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know about the whole canonization. I'm just really not sure about that. Can you tell me something else? Well, yeah, actually you can. Josephus wrote, actually, there's 39 ancient source documents of the life of Jesus Christ in detail that have nothing to do with the Bible. 39 a hundred separate recorded facts concerning his life, death, and resurrection in books that have absolutely nothing to do with the scripture. Historical record. Josephus wrote this. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks when Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified. Those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him and the tribe of Christians so called after him has still to this day not disappeared. Josephus wasn't a follower of Jesus and yet his historical accuracy even in the midst of his question is amazing. Pliny the Younger was the Roman governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor, and in one of his particular letters dated around 112 AD, what happens is he's asking his superiors uh, advice on the appropriate way to deal with the Christians 
that these people who have been accused of being Christian. And here's what he says in his letter to his superior. He says, they were in the habit, these Christians, of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. And when they sing in alternate verses, a hymn to Christ with a worship leader named Michael Armstrong. And they sang, no, I just added that. But they sang as to a God. That's interesting, right? And bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. See, they were, they were Baptists without spicy food. Right there, the very beginning. In the Talmud, this collection of Jewish rabbinical writings, we find these few words here. It says, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu. Now, Yeshua would have been the way Jesus was pronounced in the Hebrew. So here, in the eve of Passover, Jesus was hanged. Another Jewish word that would have been used at the same time to also describe crucifixion. And later in these writings, it describes Jesus as one who had enticed Israel to apostasy. <laughs> the Roman historian Tacitus wrote, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Yeah, the Bible speaks about Jesus, but so do 39 other historical documents. More historical proof that Jesus lived than even that we have of George Washington hanging around here in our country. Philip Yancey writes, You can gauge the size of a ship that has passed out of sight by the huge wake it leaves behind. I think it's an interesting quote, but I don't like it very much because, you see, it's far more significant the wake that Jesus has left. Because if you've water skied even, you know there's a wake that's behind the boat, but eventually it dissipates, right, and all becomes calm. But you know what's happened? Over 2,000 years, it's still rippling. But the wake of Jesus Christ hasn't dissipated at all. As a matter of fact, the wake's gotten bigger. The third fingerprint, Jesus left a mark on what he touched He left a mark on what he touched. Just like our kids left a mark here on what they touched, Jesus' life has done that. The mark of history. You know, many of us grew up with B.C. and A.D., before Christ, and Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And then our kids, you know, they started to learn the B.C.E. and the C.E. And they changed before Christ to common era. What I find interesting about that is although there's an interesting intent to apparently remove Christ from the way that we tell time, still what separates those two things is the life of Christ. The mark Christ has left on our earth by his name, by his moment physically on this planet. Number two, the mark of mission. Millions of ministries in the name of Jesus. The Christian church in China. Here's something interesting. You talk about leaving a mark. The Christian church in China in 15 years by, we're talking just very, uh, 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 not, 
not, not overboard statistics. Actually, we're, we're talking about very conservative projections here that the Christians in China in 15 years will outnumber the Christians in Brazil, Mexico, and the United States. Yeah, Jesus is leaving his mark. Billions impacted through history over the last 2,000 years with churches and schools and colleges and universities and seminaries. Look at universities now like Harvard and what they seem to stand for, for now is so far different from what they used to stand for. 123 colleges in colonial America, all with Christian influence and background, all but one. Harvard was certainly one of those with a Christian identity. Here's what its founding statement says. You ready for this? Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well. The main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal. That was in the founding statement of Harvard. Had Jesus never been born, music would likely sound very different than what we're used to because Handel and Vivaldi and Bach were all Christians who sought to honor God with their art. Bach even signing all of his works, Sole Deo Gloria, solely to the glory of God. Nearly all of the founders of modern science were Christians. Our science community doesn't like to talk about that. But the truth is men such as Kepler and Boyle and Pascal and Pasteur and Newton all were followers of Christ. Regarding views of women worldwide, Christianity has been instrumental in stopping practices and ideas like allowing men to have extramarital affairs or allowing widows to lose control of their husbands' estates or forcing widows to remarry within two years of their husband's death or seeing women as property or throwing out newborn female babies. You see, Christianity has been on the forefront always in all cultures since the time of Christ of saying, no, women are so much more important. Regarding children, there's this Christian document called the Didache. It's dated from the late 1st century or maybe second, early 2nd century. And you know what it contained? It, conda- it contained instructions against abortion. Christianity has always been pro-children. Regarding slavery, historians credit British evangelist William Wilberforce as the primary force behind ending the international slave trade, which happened prior to the American Civil War. And two-thirds of the members of the American Abolition Society were Christian ministers. Even crazy things like cannibalism. You know, Christian missionaries are credited with helping stop cannibalism within our world. Christ followers have impacted our world in the areas of compassion and mercy and marriage and family. And I love this quote by Dinesh D'Souza. You can say what you will about whether or not he did everything right financially or uh, whether people like his movies about the president or not or whatever. But this, this quote is powerful. He wrote this, Christianity is responsible for the way our society is organized, for the way we currently live. So extensive is the Christian contribution to our laws, 
our economics, our politics, our arts, our calendar, our holidays, and our moral and cultural priorities. That historian J.M. Roberts writes in The Triumph of the West, we could none of us today be what we are if not for a handful of Jews who nearly 2,000 years ago believed that they had known a great teacher, seen him crucified dead and buried and rose again. The mark of Jesus on history, the mark of Jesus on mission, the mark of Jesus on an individual's life. Last verse tonight, Acts 26, 29, Paul is arguing before Agrippa. And he says this, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am. What's he saying there? He had presented his testimony before Agrippa and is saying, listen, I am a life that has been changed. And Jesus is worth everything. So much so, my desire is that you might experience what I know. So I was at dinner last night at Chili's with this sweet couple. They have two daughters 19 years ago, their youngest daughter was coming home from college with a friend. They took a hairpin turn too fast. The car flipped, and their youngest daughter was killed. About six, seven years ago, I guess, their other daughter discovered that she had some intestinal infection. She fought it, fought it, fought it, fought it, was in and out of the hospital eventually 11 months ago. She died, left behind two young daughters. And as I was hanging out with this couple and they were talking about their story to me, what impacted me was how they just said, you know, there are moments when life has been so very dark. But can we just tell you that he has come to us in the darkness And he has come to us in the light. And he has proven himself to us over and over and over again. And they talked about supernatural moments with God. And they talked about a calming presence with God. And can I just tell you, as I sat there and listened to their story, I thought, these two two people right here, they are compelling evidence of the Jesus story. And so you can turn to your left and to your right, and instead of saying unique, you could just look at each one and say, you know, this person to my left, this person to my right, are they not reason for the reality of Jesus? That we were angry and God brought calm. That we were impatient and God brought patience, that we were selfish and he moved us to selflessness, that we were hopeless and he gives hope, that we were living lives of frustration and he brought joy, that we had purposelessness and he brought reason for living, that some of us in the room have struggled in our past with addiction and he has brought freedom. Headed for an eternity without God, secured now with eternity forever with him. And what I would say is, Jesus Christ, compelling evidence on this earth, is you and me. And so the question that I would say, I would ask you is, what does that look like in your life?
Has Christ made a mark on you? Do other people see it? Or would you say, you know, I don't don't know that his fingerprints are all over me. Uh, I would ask you this. Maybe if his fingerprints aren't pressed all over you, you would need to go back to this picture and just ask this question. Are his fingerprints pressed into your eternity? Because that's where life change begins. Moving from creation of his to child of his. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him so that we might have a way to you. Thank you, God, that Jesus has left a mark on this earth, but God, that he is in the business of leaving marks on our heart. God, we know that in the end, really what matters the most is that his mark is on us in a way that we are able to rejoice forever and ever and ever with all the saints at just how awesome you are. And so God, we're going to take some moments here at the conclusion of our corporate worship and just point our attention as so appropriately as possible to your son Jesus. As we have communion together, as we have this moment together, as we are so very grateful for Jesus, God, this is how we end. God, we started with with an art and craft project pointing back to your son, Jesus. We are concluding with the bread and wine to say it is all about him. Thank you, God, for this moment. The, The simplicity of it, But God, thanks for reminding us about Jesus. We love you. We worship you.